0: Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast, brought to you by Workman Forensics. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast, hosted by Leah Wheatholter, CEO of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Joining Leah today is Rick Roybal. Vendor risk management activist, author, and speaker, Rick Roybal has worked in the oil and gas industry for over 15 years. His early career in technical writing fostered a desire for organizational policy and procedural development. Today, Rick is a project manager for Martindale Consultants. Rick's experience in vendor due diligence and compliance gives Martindale a front seat view of the risks inherent in their client's vendor management process. Rick also serves as the president and chair of the Vendor Roundtable. Rick has earned three degrees a BA in Russian, an MA in Linguistics, and an MBA in Finance and Accounting. Rick is a Certified Fraud Examiner and Certified Information Systems Auditor. Thank you for joining us today, Rick.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I've really uh, been looking forward to uh, joining you on a podcast. I've listened to several of them, and uh, I've been wanting to join the fun here. So I'm ready to go. (laughs) Yeah,
2: well, we're super glad to have you. Um, Now, I ran across... Your name and information uh, on LinkedIn, but then also because you wrote an article for the ACFE's Fraud Magazine, and it was called "It Is Called Keys to the Kingdom: Oil Field Fraud," a fictionalized case story about vendor fraud within the oil and gas industry. So, what was the source of inspiration for this case study?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think first of all, just a little bit about my background. I, you know, have a a degree in Russian linguistics. And then I had this MBA in finance accounting. And I, I have always seemed to kind of meld these things together. I used to teach um, literature classes and writing classes at the university. So I, I've always loved to write, whether it's a report or that's a story. And so when I started kind of coming across some of these case studies, I said, let's, let's do this, but let's change up the names and the faces and everything. And so I fictionalized these things. And then and then I uh, kind of add a little detail because I don't know all the parts of the story, but, uh, but that, so that's a little bit where the inspiration came, but honestly, I just sub- subscribe to the the Google uh, newsfeed and put in, you know, FBI case study f- vendor fraud, and then output comes in his email. And I just kind of say, this sounds like a good story to write about.
2: Yeah. Awesome. So it um, is this one based on one story or is it, based on a collection of stories
1: yeah it's based on um a one story um and actually it is a um a story that actually came out of oklahoma and and nothing to nothing to say bad about oklahoma but a lot a lot of my stories come out of oklahoma so um oil and
2: gas right no
1: exactly exactly not it's not to say that texas doesn't have its share problems, but um just recently, it has been that way. So,
2: yeah. Well, why don't we just jump in and you tell us about this case story?
1: Sure, no, no problem. Um, so, this is a, a story that came um, out from a some work that was done with uh, Chesapeake, and uh, as many of your listeners uh, are where you know Chesapeake is huge to the economy in, in Oklahoma and so when it did break it was a little bit of surprise uh, surprising to me because I thought there were some more controls in place and perhaps there are and this one just slipped through it but anyways nonetheless here it's kind of unique this gentleman uh, he was working as a, a production foreman um, and that's you know, Pretty high up the food chain. You're out there water watching, you know, the water and maintenance of tanks and things like that. And he worked for Chesapeake from 2002 until, and I'm going to give be kind of specific here, until September of uh, 2011. Um, at about July 2011, he decided to form uh, his own company. It was called Platinum Express. It's now defunct. But uh, he started in July of 2011. So he was thinking about these things uh, way before he was even, you know, uh, not an employee anymore. The interesting thing is that when he left Chesapeake, he be- soon uh, became a, an approved Chesapeake contractor. And that was within a month. Again, was that normal speed through going through due diligence, et cetera? I don't know. It may have had to do with something with the fact that he was a former employee and then he became a contractor. So you you can already see the story kind of bubbling up here. So the interesting thing was is that what he was overseeing uh, while he was a Chesapeake employee, he now became that type of contractor, and that is specifically this water hauler. Um, and it's water hauling is has been ripe with you know fraud for many, many years and it's getting better, but there's still, you know, some bad actors out there because it's just this open, you know, nobody's watching, you know, the, the big, you know, big is out there. There's very little oversight, et cetera. And the invoices come in very, very low. So it just kind of falls underneath the radar. So he, he worked for Chesapeake from October, 2011 until about July, 2014, the the case is, is that he defrauded Chesapeake for about four point three million dollars, and that's quite a bit if you start to think about it and kind of do some calculations. Because what that means is that it was about you know uh, I think they said about eleven hundred fraudulent invoices. There may have been some legitimate ones in there. Yeah, pretty bad. Um, so just kind of falling a little bit farther along there. You know, his fraud really was is that because he knew sort of where the control gaps were uh, in this area, he decided that's the way he was going to, you know, sort of manipulate. And so he generated invoices that were under $5,000. And that was the amount that lower level amount for processing and payment. He forged the signatures and used the employee IDs of of certain Chesapeake employees. And, and that was, you know, the green light for accounts payable to kind of process invoices Um, and then finally he submitted it through, through open invoice. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if he knew that, uh, open invoice didn't have, you know, red flags or a price book to be able to catch these things. then it was just, you know, the green light for him. So that's how he, that's how he got away with it.
2: Yeah. So just a couple questions I had as you were talking about that, um, so was he an employee when he was running the scheme and then he just kept it going after he left or did he wait until after he left? I don't think I followed the dates there.
1: He did leave. Um, and so, but what we don't know is did he leave on good terms? The interesting thing is, is and this is something I share with some of my audience, audience members when I talk about this, and that is, you know, Chesapeake at that time in 2011 was a good job to have. I mean, there was about 10,000 employees, uh, U.S. employees there were only about 900 job openings at the time. Catch this leave. There was 160,000 applicants, you know, going for those 900 jobs. So it was a good it's a good job to have and and there was a, you know, this average salary of about 113,000. So why did he leave? I don't know. Maybe it's because he thought he could make more you know, doing his own thing.
2: Yeah. So this water hauling, is this salt water hauling or was this something else?
1: No, that you hit the nail on the head. It is salt water hauling, so and and flow back, which is that, you know, the time period when they frack the well and the water starts to come back. So there's lots of water to be to be hauled. But the thing is is that he, he kind of morphed his business. He went from water hauling and then he, all of a sudden he said he could do, you know, some repairs and maintenance and he could fix the, 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 uh, the berms out there in the field. So he did a lot of things that were not on the original list of services that he was going to provide. And that's what allowed to kind of, you know, uh, let the scheme go because it was stuff again, that was falling right under the radar uh, and that people were just kind of that tend to rubber stamp, um, approvals on these invoices.
2: Yeah. So whenever we have an oil and gas related case, there are just so many components of oil and gas. Um, and so just for anyone who might not know, and so correct me if I'm wrong, the saltwater hauling is when, uh, like whenever they've drilled these wells, um, and is it just related to fracking? Or is it any well?
1: No, the flowback is related to the fracking, but this really salt water is sort of just a natural process that comes, you know, through the hydrocarbon yeah. stream. It's the oil, it's the gas, it's the salt water,
2: so. and then so then you have this salt water, and then they have to get it out of the well and then carry it off. Is what that's, these guys are doing. That's correct. Right? Okay, yeah. that's my that's my uh, layman's description of how I in, in, envision this, and actually. Um, there was a presenter from your current company that had talked about how you have to watch those saltwater haulers as well, because they'll sometimes take some of the oil at the same time.
1: Yeah. The, skim, the skim oil. That's yeah. right. Exactly. And that yeah. the thing is, is that when that stream of liquids comes out of the well, it has to be separated and, and no process is a hundred percent perfect. And so what happens in that case is that some of the oil remains in the water and it gets sent to the water tank. Um, and depending on how much oil is in there, I mean, some of it's very, very minimal, but then there's lots of cases where it's a lot higher. Um, and they can take off with that. So,
2: so saltwater hauling though is—I mean, you have to have some equipment. Did this guy have any equipment at all? Any trucks, anything like that, or was it just completely fake?
1: That's a good question, and I—I I have not found the answer to that because I mean, here he is. He's—he's he's worked at Chesapeake, and last last time I remember, it's like if you want to start a business and have a whole bunch of equipment, you either need to take a loan out or you paid cash for it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I imagine, uh, because I've seen a lot of these sort of, you know, uh, mom and pop type of water hauling companies is that they have one or two trucks and they can, they can run anywhere from, you know, quarter of a million to over a million dollars, depending on the, you know, how old they are. So my guess is that he had one and it just, you know, but you could, you can make up and say, well, we had Bill doing it this way and, and Mike picking up here. And if you're not monitoring, it's, it's just, you know, out of control.
2: Yeah. And then the fact that it was below that threshold that would have had more scrutiny. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, you know, in, in the story that I wrote, uh, I had to use a little bit of, you know, kind of my, uh, you know, idea of kind of like, okay, what would my imagination, how can I put myself there and see how would he have taken those uh, signatures uh, that he used for those invoices? And my story does this, is that when he left uh, this fictionalized company, he was given a birthday card and within the, uh, excuse me, a going away card, birthday card, he was given a going away card. And within the going away card, there was all these signatures, you know, best of luck, Mm -hmm. Mike Smith and all this kind of stuff. And that he used that. And I imagine that's probably what he did. He probably, you know, took it and got some signatures while he was there, you know, just surreptitiously and then used that to, to go with the fraud. So, but yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But Lee, you know, the thing is, is that you and I are both thinking this is like, you know, the whole idea behind sort of that, you know, fraud triangle. It's like, why was he doing this in the first place?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: we know about the opportunity we know about pressure perhaps but, but that you know maybe but w- what is it that he was uh that was driving him to do it I, I don't know i heard he his wife had had some health problems but was that it mm-hmm. i don't know, so
2: yeah which i feel like any time i've worked a case where there's health problems i, I think sometimes it's you know, I, I've, I've known of cases or I've worked cases where they were stealing to pay medical bills, but then just because it was stressful, they would steal and then gamble steal and shop, you know, like it was also a stress relief, like mm. they were funding their stress relievers too, from mm. whatever the situation was.
1: That's interesting. Well, that, I'll give you, I'll give you an interesting fact about this guy at the, you know, as the, you know, it kind of unraveled on him. Okay. He was, uh, he was, you know, requested to, you know, have an audit performed on his business. And, and Chesapeake must have known what was going on because not normally is it that you pick such a low threshold vendor unless something's happening. Um, there could have been a hotline call or something like that. But when Chesapeake, you know, informed this guy, Justin, about their intention to do an audit, he staged a break in at his own office and so he you know reports all these missing items such as the desktop computer a laptop computer he even says two credit cards are gone he even says hey two boxes of blank checks are gone so he was he was taking all the things that they might have asked for and Funny thing is, is that when when the, uh, you know, in law, invest, law guys come in to, you know, figure out, you know, what's going on, the FBI, they say, hey, give us the security footage so we can see who did this. And uh, that part from when he came in to when he exit just seemed to be disappeared. It was a little splice and dice and that uh, security footage was gone. So uh, it just, it, it just Stunk, <laughs> yeah. Uh, problem. So,
2: yeah, for sure. So that's when it was discovered was through this audit, and then you said it was over four million dollars.
1: Yeah, and, and and in the end, he was charged with you know one count of money laundering, two counts of identity theft. That's that employee ID piece. Um, eight counts of wire fraud, and then there was that obstruction of justice. That was that break in. Mm-hmm. Obviously he was found guilty. He was sentenced to 10 years of prison and then, um, and he had to pay restitution. So. Wow. So,
2: okay. So that's kind of interesting because for a $4 million loss, I do think ah I'm a little rusty on my sentencing guidelines, but I do think that that might have enhanced the, you know, it being over three and a half million or mm-hmm. whatever that next cutoff is mm-hmm. like that might've enhanced the sentencing, yes. but I bet it was all the identity theft. They got yeah. him those extra years That's because correct. if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, it will add on two years. Um, It will add on two years and it can't be served cons- uh, at the same time. So consecutively mm-hmm. it has to be like it has to be added on, so I bet that's how he got up to ten years because that's that's a lot of prison time for a white collar
1: crime. Exactly, that's the that's what I thought too, and you know you know delved a little bit more into it, and that's and that really is what was happening is that those all of those uh, charges you know piled up uh, upon each other really drove that sentencing. So it's it's not good. So, but that's the kind of thing that I wouldn't say happens obviously, all the time in oil and gas, but it does happen uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, we're, I was seeing, you know, probably one to two, you know, vendors a year where things like this were starting to happen, you know, happen. Um, and, you know, they were either cut off or, you know, you know, they had to pay back some money and et cetera. So, but it, it can boil up to this point. And it's nice to see companies like Chesapeake Go after these guys so that it kind of, you know, deters other criminals uh, from doing this. Yeah.
2: And I want to get into uh, the prevention side of this and some things, some other things you've seen. But first, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. At Workman Forensics, we're your modern day Sherlock Holmes. The team at Workman Forensics follows patterns to find money through forensic accounting and fraud investigation services. Using our data sleuth process, we build client cases telling the story of what actually happened. This process serves clients in the best way, whether they are going through a divorce, a partnership dispute, an estate and trust dispute, or a fraud investigation. So what is data sleuthing? Well, after serving clients in this best way for 10 years, we are proud of our technological improvements, making our investigations work similar to that of a manufacturing process. By following a consistent investigative and internal process, our team addresses client concerns in a timely, responsive, and thorough manner. But don't worry, clients don't go through this process alone. We believe communication is vital to the success of an engagement, so each client is guided by a highly trained and specialized expert forensic accountant along the way. And because we think data sleuthing is the best way to investigate financial disputes, we work to train other professionals as well through our investigation games, guided interactive workshops, and our Be A Data Sleuth seminars. To learn more about any of these services or trainings, visit our website, WorkmanForensics.com. In fact, our website is full of resources for anyone looking to learn more about forensic accounting, fraud investigation, or our data sleuth process. This includes blog posts, free Excel downloads, more podcast episodes, and links to our YouTube channel. So if you're looking to get into the investigation industry, or if you've been an investigator for years, we know you'll find something helpful in our free resources. So visit our website, WorkmanForensics.com. Welcome back to my interview with Rick Roible. Rick, so let's talk about some of the best ways that a company can prevent something like this. And actually, let me let me back up one one step here. Are these types of cases that we've been discussing something that you're familiar with from your work?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, No doubt about it. It, and, And this type of case, you know, sort of encompassed a lot of the things that I've seen and. What I typically see in my line of work are little slices of this where we see a conflict of interest where we see some problems with the due diligence the onboarding uh, or we see some problems in the sort of work order approval process we see it happening there and in a lot of cases you know uh, you know the companies I worked for or the companies I do work for uh, they just Cut them off or fix those uh, problems. So it's interesting. Vendor audits don't always, you know, result in the vendor getting fired or the vendor changing the processes. What it usually does, it's a reflection back upon the operator, where the operator says, "Look, we have a we have a big control gap here. We need to fix so fix this so that other vendors are not doing the same thing to us." So
2: yeah, so your clients in, in your work, you're dealing with the operators.
1: Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: So then what are some of the best ways for a company to prevent something like this, whether it's oil and gas or, or likewise, but you know, what are some of those things that you recommend to your client?
1: Yeah, definitely. So let's, this, let's take it from this kind of, this purview, this grid of using this case. Okay. Um, you know, some of the things that went wrong that I would recommend if I saw something like this is that number one is, Hiring, you know, employees, relatives or former employees, that really st- should be something that's discouraged. Um, you know, it's while it's, hey, I have someone to bring on. It's my brother's cousin's sister. Yeah, that's good. But you know what? It's sort of, you know, that arm's length transaction. It doesn't work very well. So that's one of the things that I would discourage. I also look at that at the vendor level is level two. And that is if I see sort of this, you know, brother hiring a brother to do work and renting, you know, the equipment and pay, that's a big, big red flag. So I always address that. Um, As I mentioned before about the due diligence, you know, vendor due diligence is an absolute must. You know, I I recently listened to one of your podcasts where uh, the gentleman was talking about due diligence process and he he and his company really dig into these, uh, you know, prospective uh, clients and such. And, and that is a, uh, a big must. And the reason is, is because if you just hire this company and you don't look and see who's running it or what they've done or, uh, you know, the issues that they have, you know, you're just opening up yourself for, you know, for failure, um, The other things that I would probably recommend, you know, just using this case as an example, is that um, it's always important to be doing a vendor risk assessment, you know, either upon yourself or hiring someone to do it. And really that risk assessment is this, is that you take your vendor base, you kind of do some simple pivot tables where you're looking at the expenditures, you're looking at the number of invoices, you're, you're pulling in some data, like perhaps Accounts payable has a file that they, you know, use to say I've got issues with this uh, uh, vendor. Or, I've had this problem where this payment was had to be resubmitted. Data like that is excellent. And the richer the data, the more data that you bring in, that is makes a really good risk assessment process. Now, ha- that being said, the risk assessment proce- process should be followed up by vendor audits. And they can go on with any type of flavor, like where you have just a sort of siloed approach. You look at one thing or you have a sort of a wide, you know, look at vendors. But it's so important because it gives your vendors a message that it's important uh, that we make sure that these charges are validated, that, you know, you're doing the right thing and that we're doing the right thing. So those are some of the types of uh, recommendations that I would make. You need- you know using this case as an example
2: yeah so when you're talking about vendor audits are you talking about when the operator or the you know your client has an agreement with a vendor and within that agreement there's an audit provision are those the types of vendor audits are you talking about audit for the operator their list of vendors and so you look for outliers and then you dig down deeper or are you talking about both
1: <laughs> a little bit of both okay a little bit of both yeah um, typically what we're doing is we're working with operators uh, you know upstream midstream downstream and saying hey let's uh, take a look at your you know vendor base and the spend expenditures etc make a sort of a selection and then conduct audits based upon that provision and the MSA or the the agreement. Um, And then say, "Hey, look, we're looking at the financial records and anything kind of related to that. That's that's the type of work that we do.
2: Yeah. So just kind of a compare and contrast, because um, I know whenever we're talking about embezzlement sometimes or other fraud cases, we're talking about small businesses where one person handles everything and there's really no vendor management system. And really, you're talking about organizations that have a vendor management system that do have these agreements. I know that um, we were just doing a simple training for a midstream oil and gas company. And it was like, you know, going to take like one morning or something. And I had to sign this massive master services agreement for them, which included that audit provision. But so often companies don't even have that. So I just kind of want to distinguish that um, you know, when somebody does have a vendor management system, that there is that provision where you can then drill down with, you know, there is that audit provision where you can work with the vendor to audit their records.
1: Yeah. And and you and I both would say, if that's not something that's in your service agreement, that that's something that, uh, is an absolute must, um, you know, trust, but verify, right. And, um, it's just, a you know, it's a mark of a very sophisticated company that would have something like that. Those that don't have those types. And it's, it's, it's rare to see that with an operator. I mean, typically what we might see with an operator is that they don't, they just don't have a service agreement at all with them. Um, but without that, you know, provision, uh, it's just, it's almost impossible to go about doing the audit too. So, um,
2: Yeah. We've, I had one several years ago and actually I guess it was kind of in oil and gas. It was a subcontractor of a subcontractor type thing. (laughs) And, uh, so whenever they had contracted out this work to, um, the subcontractor, like B, uh, they, in their agreement and, you know, I have this with my independent contractors as well, like that we can audit the time records, you know, however you're billing us, we can audit that before we, your bill if we think that we need to. Anyway, this, is, uh, it turned into a really interesting case. I have no idea where it ended up. Um, cause our work on it was just kind of different. Uh, but anyway, subcontractor B just started refusing to comply with that vendor audit. And so of course it's kind of like, well, okay. And this is totally fake. Anyway, fun into that story is that the guy, the subcontractor was supposed to be a professional, like a licensed professional. And he was not at all. And he had even forged or had like stamps made, uh, cause he needed to stamp some documents and even had that forged. And anyway, it was a fun case, but, <laughs> but yeah, as soon as they started refusing to cooperate, it's like, okay,
1: those are red flags. Yeah. flags, right? So, for sure.
2: For sure. Like, Probably none of their invoices are legitimate, you know?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, interesting. Well, I want to have enough time to talk about the oil and gas vendor roundtable.
1: Yeah. What Mm -hmm. is this? Yeah, sure. In 2014, um, you know, I was living in Denver, working for an operator up there. And um, to be honest, you know, I just didn't know, you know, were there any other, you know, Rick Roybles out there, you know, in the sense of vendor auditors, um, I knew of a couple, but really, honestly, it was just, uh, who are they? You, you try to look on LinkedIn and it's, you couldn't find many. So um, I, fort- I had a very fortunate phone call um, that got set up with me and it was a person that was working for another operator and she called and we talked for maybe two or three hours and at the end, we kind of both agreed. It's like, wouldn't it be great to, to do something like this where we meet? you know, often where we can talk about these cases or, you know, just best practices, et cetera. Well, that birthed uh, an organization um, about six months later. And so ever since then, you know, we have been meeting usually about twice a year. Um, COVID has certainly changed things, but we meet twice a year and it's grown from 10 people at that very first meeting to now over 500 people across the world. And yeah, it's, phenomenal. Uh and it's not just now vendor auditors. You know, we have accounts payable and other accounting, you know, folks coming in. We have contract management. Um, we have risk that's coming in. And then sometimes we just have, you know, the operations that come in as well. In fact, uh interesting enough, we have a, a class that's coming up on april the 6th i don't know when this is going to run but on april the 6th uh this uh in a few days and it's about how to audit water haulers and we have actually a couple of vendors that are coming so i don't know what that means if 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 they're trying to figure out you know the keys to the kingdom (laughs) right but if they're learning best practices and that's what we're going to be sharing, then that's great. So um, we're excited about that. So it's a great organization where we are really just kind of – we're sort of the platform for people to share best practices and ideas. So
2: Yeah, awesome. It mm-hmm. sounds like a fantastic resource. Yes, it is. Um, and we'll make sure that we put a link to that in the show notes if anybody's interested. And I, I do think this episode is going to air after – April 6th, but is there a way, do you ever post these or like record yeah. any of these sessions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They get recorded. And, um, and, and the thing is, is that what we do is try to do regularly. Um, we do kind of scheduled uh, classes here and there. We have a, a third party inventory class that'll be coming up. Um, we're going to do something with accounts payable. And we may just have a big general roundtable again in the fall. So we do a lot of different meetings. They're they're virtual, obviously, right now. But we're hoping that in the near future uh, we can start to do sort of maybe a hybrid event. So
2: yeah, awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, before we wrap up. I really like asking, this is kind of my question of the year, I guess, is asking every guest if there's an investigation or a case you'll never forget that you'd like to share with us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, I, I'll give a little bit of two, okay? But just one of them in the sense that I won't share many details, uh, but I really was afraid for my life and that, that vendor audit. And, um, I would have changed a few things where I wasn't just with one other person. So that (laughs) was, I was in the, out in the middle of West Texas. Uh, and I, uh, wish, uh, that I hadn't done that, but the, the one that I really truly, uh, remember was my first vendor audit, I would say. And, um, I was working for an operator, um, I went down to visit the vendor. The vendor was very amenable to me coming down there. Not a problem. Yeah, you know, we can do a ride along. And um, the reason I remember it and the reason I, I want to share it with your guests is the fact is that uh, preparation for these things is is paramount. Uh, and I don't think that I did a very good job of preparing for it. I was new, okay? I was new to the, to the whole vendor audit um, thing. But uh, I didn't ask a lot of questions. And I really... It didn't, uh, you know, keep my eyes open for so many things. And it was after that ride along where I went back and I started kind of scrutinizing the invoices and things that I really wasn't looking for. They started to come a little bit alive. um, And I was like, why would they be charging for this? Oh, maybe that was something that he talked about. Because sometimes, you know, this is that when you're doing these investigations or these audits. They kind of give you some answers to what they're doing. And, and, I, and I believe it, that was the case for him. But I um, really uh, like to share that one because my boss at the time, uh, he was the internal audit director. He was the one that said, Rick, when you're done with, a, with an audit, start digging into paid history, dig around, see what you can find and that was the motivation that i had that really got me kickstarted into vendor audits and i and i will forever be grateful uh, to that boss uh, for his uh, guidance and also his encouragement. So.
2: Yeah, so i'm curious if you remember and if you can share it what types of things were being charged to your
1: client? Oh, f- uh, flowers and, you know, t- satellite tv and, you know, call outs, you know, and the mer- emergency call outs that Never happened. Um, there, in let's see, in particular, there was one invoice where um, he shared that he had to go out on an emergency call out because of a lightning storm. One thing I did do is I went back and looked at the weather for that day in that area, and there was no uh, lightning storm. There was no rain. So uh, <laughs> those are the things that he was charging for that didn't match up with you know valid charges.
2: Yeah, interesting. Just. Just some of those little things, but they definitely add up. I mean, like your story with Chesapeake, when you have that many invoices, even though it seemed like you know lower than the threshold amounts, you send, what was it, 11,000? Is that what you said? 11,000 emails or 1100?
1: Well, it was actually 1100, but okay, 11, I mean, that's, that's what was identified. But again, I mean, I you see this all the time. You see these vendors where they're charging thousands of invoices and there's no way that someone is looking at those in detail. There's no way. But yeah, technology is it, helping and I think good best practices are starting to kind of emerge. So,
2: And I think that you know with just data analytics becoming something that's you know people are warming up to for sure like That would just be something simple to check for. Like who's billing us more than once a week if they're on a weekly or who's billing us more than once a month if they're monthly. I mean, it just seems like there would be a test to very simply spit those out.
1: Oh, there is. And, um, you know, I'll put a little plug in for this company, but uh, Inveris has um, a little add on to their open index, open invoice uh, system that it can do these uh, queries and these checks and do red flags. Now, of course, it has to be entered in as an electronic field ticket, but it sets these, you know, kind of things going for you. So there's a lot of companies that are doing that nowadays. They're doing these automatic checks. Um, Data analytics is huge. I mean, we're doing neat things with data analytics and and GPS. Um, Mm -hmm. And so yeah, it's great good stuff. I love technology.
2: Yes. I love GPS. Like I love having that data to just, you know, oh, how are we gonna know which of these are legit or not? And then you find out there's GPS data, like boom. That's all I needed, you know? Yes, exactly.
1: The facts are the facts. I mean you can't argue with it. Like this, sorry, but you weren't there. You know yeah. or, or you you know, didn't, you know, take that much time to do your, what you were saying you did. So, you know. Right.
2: Or there was no storm on that day.
1: Yeah, so there was no storm on that
2: day. <laughs> those, those are the things I love. Those are real clean, clear.
1: Yeah,
2: That's awesome. Well, Rick, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. Um, if any of our listeners would like to connect with you or learn more about your work, what's the best way to do so?
1: Yeah, um, they can uh, reach me at, uh, they can go to vendorroundtable.com, uh, but they can also send me an email. Um and I'm sure you'll put a, an email address, but it's uh, at my Martindale uh, consultant's email. And I'd be happy to talk to him. It doesn't have to be for selling anything. It's just, hey, let's talk. Let's ask questions and uh, see if I can answer anything. You know, put you in touch with, you know, uh, somebody else that's having some issues like this that can help. So that's that's what I'm all about.
2: Yeah, love it. Well, I'll make sure that we include those in the show notes. And thank you so much again.
1: No problem. Thank you.